This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. Today we're talking about religious freedom in Russia. So I'm Morgan Lee and I'm assistant editor at Christianity Today and I'm joined by Mark who is also an expert on Russia. Isn't that true, Mark? Sort of. I have uh, Russia in my blood. Not so to speak, but in fact, I um, come from a a mother who is Russian, whose family came over to the United States in the 1920s. Cool. I hope you get to talk about that a little bit today on the show. Who is our guest today? Our guest is Andre Sheeran, who's an assistant professor of divinity and director of transformational leadership at John Leland Center for Theological Studies, which is in Arlington, Virginia. We're just really glad he could join us because I think he has some really wise things to say about the situation over there. Welcome, Andre. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. How long have you lived in the States, Andre? Oh, about 25 years. Uh, came uh, originally for my theological studies back in 1991. That's an interesting year to come over here. <laughs> Nothing was going on in the USSR at that time, was it? Well, I came just three weeks before the August school. Wow. And, and was that timed at all, or that just was a coincidence? That was a coincidence, but that August school was a lot more fun to watch from over uh, over here than we'd been there at that time. Man, really, what an interesting time, though, to come across um, for everyone who is unfamiliar. I hope people aren't unfamiliar with 1991. That was when the Soviet Union collapsed officially. All right. Well, I'm really excited to talk about this. I took a Russian politics class in college and like we're going to try to not get too wonky about this stuff but I find it all really fascinating and I've been following um, the Putin era essentially since he got elected back in 2001 and so I am really looking forward to diving into a lot of this. Yeah me um, me too from another perspective I've spent a lot of time thinking about orthodoxy both Russian Greek and uh, how they understand the world how they do theology the relationship of church and state and orthodox mind so I think this is going to be a great conversation. All right well let's get into the conversation and then we can pepper Andre with questions. So earlier this month, Russia's justice ministry submitted a Supreme Court case to label Jehovah Witnesses as an extremist group. And the move made this one step closer to the government banning the faith and criminalizing its worship. In the past decade, the government has banned a number of Jehovah Witness books, pamphlets, and magazines, and at times raided its national headquarters. As the government moves to crack down on Jehovah Witnesses, the country's evangelicals have remained ambivalent about speaking out for this minority faith. Baptists and Lutherans are often regarded as traditional religions by rational judicial practice and by the Orthodox, said William Yoder, a spokesperson for the Russian Evangelical Alliance. Protestants do at times succumb to the temptation to accept the common Russian division between quote-unquote traditional and quote-unquote non-traditional religions if they themselves happen to be on the right side of the divide. If Protestants are nervous about their own standing in the country, it may be because of a series of laws the government passed in the past year which require missionaries to have permits, 
It makes house churches illegal and limits religious activity to registered church buildings, effectively restricting Christians from evangelizing outside of their churches. So this week on Quick to Listen, we will be discussing how Russian evangelicals are strategizing how to handle the current political and religious climate in their country. We'll also be delving into some of the important cultural and historical context as to how this crackdown has kind of come about. Before I get into the gut check, which is when Mark and I give our unedited takes on things. I just wanted to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And you can get this magazine by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. It's orderct.com slash quick to listen. Mark, do you have anything that you want to tease about the magazine that you're especially excited for in upcoming issues? Well, I'm kind of excited about the current one because I wrote the cover story, so... It's true. Sorry, but it's about our identity in Christ and how the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ leads to a profoundly new identity for us as human beings, as Christians. So I encourage you to read it. I do encourage everyone to read it, and I'm not sure. I think people can still get that issue, and if they don't subscribe in time to get this issue, we have our May issue cover stories about self-control. That is correct. Looking at the new science of self-control and what it actually we can and cannot control and how we go about doing that. And I think to illustrate that, we have like a giant cookie on the front of it or cupcake. No, I think it's a donut. <laughs> All right, I well. know it's a donut because that's one of my main weaknesses <laughs> in life. So, All right. Well, if people subscribe now, they should be able to get both of those issues. Um, but at the very least, you'll get the one with the giant donut on the front. And it looks pretty cool. So you can do that again by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. And thank you for everyone who subscribes to the magazine and supports our podcast in that way. As I mentioned, we're going to move into the gut check, which is when Mark and I tell you how we really feel about something. There's obviously a lot going on in this Russia situation, but I specifically wanted to kind of focus on this move that the Russian government has been making on Jehovah Witnesses and kind of like what we think of the evangelical response or kind of lack thereof. So Mark, maybe you can go first. Yeah, when I heard this news or read it, on the one hand, I was thinking deja vu because the Jehovah Witnesses seem to have uh, more trouble with states than most any other minority religion. Uh, That includes the United States. They've had a rough ride here trying to gain uh, religious freedom over the decades. On the other hand, I recognize that in Russia, they think about the world differently than we do. So... I was interested in reading Andre's article to kind of get a different perspective on what they think should be or shouldn't be allowed in terms of religious freedom or what that might look like. So as usual, after I read a news story, it got me to thinking and left me perplexed. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll link to CT's story in the podcast description for people that want some more background on this. But one note that was made in the story was just that um, Jehovah Witnesses at times can be kind of a bellwether for the overall religious climate in the country. And so I I was really curious about what that would mean for the country's evangelicals and how religious freedom was going to kind of shake out in here. You know, if they were really going after a group that people found annoying and were kind of seen as fringe, or if this was supposed to be part of a larger crackdown. And, And I also was very intrigued by this reaction that some of the, you know, they talked about the Baptists and Lutherans here of trying to figure out who they should, I don't know if cozy up to is the right word, but align themselves with depending on the time. But I want to start with a little bit of a brief history of the evangelical church in here. Andre, can you give us some sense of when we first see evangelicals emerge in Russia or the USSR? Sure. The first uh, Russian evangelical 
uh, mostly Baptist communities arose in unrelated strains in three widely separated regions of the Russian Empire in the 1860s and 1870s. The number of uh, Baptists in Russia significantly grew after World War I. Uh, some Russian prisoners were converted by German missionaries and returned home to preach to others. Russian evangelicals have had to deal uh, with harsh persecution during, my, during much of their history. Uh, right now, their numbers are roughly uh, two to 300,000, about one and a half percent of Russian population. So I, I have a personal anecdote in that regard. There is a story running around in my family that my great-great-grandfather was a convert from Orthodoxy to becoming a Baptist and was subsequently persecuted for it. So that makes sense to me, that you the history you just told. What are the different ways that evangelicals have been regarded by the Orthodox Church? Often as heretics, uh, but uh, Russian patriarch Cyril publicly called them brothers and prayed with them on several occasions. Because Russian evangelicals, mostly Baptists, originally split, split from Russian Orthodox Church, he called them Orthodox Baptists, our Baptists, Orthodox Baptists. So, Mark, you would probably fit in that category. There we go, okay. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, that is in distinction from Western Protestants who are perceived to be uh, abandoning traditional Christian morals and values. So there is that larger context among Christians how to react to changes in the larger society, to secularism and to changing of gender roles in society, changing of uh, the outlook on uh, LGBT community, etc. You know, I actually I wanted to ask you a follow-up question to something that you said about Orthodox Protestants. What do you have to do to kind of get the credential of both being a Protestant and part of the Orthodox community? Uh, well, uh, uh, Cyril said that mostly in jest, uh, but I think uh, in the Russian context, that would mean at least uh, not calling Orthodox idol worshippers, nominal Christians, etc., and perhaps uh, working towards some common goals, which is uh, strengthening morals in Russian society, strengthening Russian states, and uh, that gets us to the concept of symphonia of uh, the harmonious relation between uh, the state and Russian Orthodox Church. So as long as the Baptists affirm the Orthodox as Christians, fellow brothers and sisters, and support the efforts of the state to bring law and order and morals to society, the Orthodox don't seem to have a problem with them? Uh, not as much, uh, not as much of a problem as they would uh, with Jehovah Witnesses. But the Jehovah Witnesses are kind of, um, they're a separatist sect. My understanding is they don't necessarily speak out negatively against the government there, do they? Well, uh, uh, not officially, you know, but between themselves, it's uh, hard not to go negative, at least at times, on the government that seems to be tightening the screws. Okay. Plus, they're pacifists, so they're not going to be able to support the state when it comes to that commitment. So I would think the state would be a little suspicious of anyone who refuses military service. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But um, so are some of the evangelicals, as, as a matter of fact. During my military service, I did not decline to go to the military service, but I just declined to take the military pledge to the Soviet government because uh, I did not want to kill anybody. I see. Okay, that's very interesting. I, do, I wasn't aware of that. Is military service compulsory for everyone? It is mandatory, yes. And how many years do you have to spend in it? I had to, I had to spend a couple of years, two years. Gotcha. But the military makes provision for people like you who, who would want to serve but would refuse to kill. Well, yes, uh, the military ma makes that provision. In fact, I was serving in a construction, in a military construction unit where I did not have to take arms. 
Okay, that's very interesting. Just to shift back to evangelicals for a second, and I want to talk more about their relationship with the Orthodox Church. At what point would you say that they're, yeah, they've been the friendliest with the Orthodox Church, and at what points have they been the most strained? Uh, they were healthiest in, ironically, in the Soviet Union, particularly from uh, late 1920s on, where when both were pressured by the same officials and Orthodox priests and Russian evangelical pastors often spent time together in the same jails and prison camps. But in all the rest of the time of existence of evangelical movement in Russia, the relations has been more strained. Uh, Russian Orthodox tend to see Russia as their own turf. Uh, evangelicals, on the other hand, often spoke of Russian Orthodox as idol worshippers with nominal faith only. So there is always that uh, some sort of unease, uh, some kind of tension between evangelicals and Russian Orthodox. I'm wondering, you know, you wrote some about this for CT last year, but I wonder if you can just explain to our listeners how the idea of religious freedom is viewed in Russian culture. Uh, very few uh, would say that they're against religious freedom. Freedom of religion has been embraced as a major value, hard won by those who have kept their faith under tremendous pressure and persecution. But uh, proselytism is frowned upon, as it is often in the West. And Russian Orthodox Church has claimed that by default all Russians belong to it. As a matter of fact, many Russians agree, even those who have very tenuous connection to churches, even though uh, who go to church for Easter service only or not go at all when asked, uh, what is your faith? Do you believe in God? They would say, yes, I am, I am Orthodox. So uh, Russian Orthodox Church has claimed that by default all Russians belong to it. Consequently, any attempt to share faith even with those Russians who are fairly remote from the Orthodox, Orthodox Church is often perceived as proselytism. But as long as you just meet for worship in your church, uh, you're not perceived as a threat. So they believe more, it's more technically you'd call it freedom freedom of worship. I think you could say that, yes, it is freedom of worship. When it comes to proselytism, it's just the societal attitude is, is more negative to that. Which gets right at the heart of a lot of evangelical uh, faiths that obviously see evangelism and proselytizing as part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. Yes, yes, and also for Jehovah's Witnesses. That's true. That That is, they tend to be more, yeah, outspoken and aggressive about that sort of thing. Given this idea of, you know, religious freedom or freedom of worship, as, as Mark was saying, how does that play out when it comes to these laws that they passed last year? And I realize that some of those laws are trying to crack down on proselytizing, which you said was really frowned upon. But for instance, one of them, like, makes house churches illegal. Um, and so how do we explain the, you know, this idea of, like, yes, people can, you know, worship how they want to, but then they also pass these laws? Mm-hmm. The implementation of those laws have been uneven. Uh, in one early case, Hare Krishna adherent Vladimir Sibriev, Vadim Sibriev was charged with undertaking illegal missionary activity for distributing religious literature in the street in Cherkask. He was acquitted uh, because the judge agreed that he had been acting as a private person, not as a rep. Uh, as the representative of religious association. Forum 18 tells us that Donald Asivard, an American Baptist, was fined uh, about $700 for holding house church in his home. The local justice ministry confirmed that, like Sibriev, Asivard was not an official representative of any religious organization. So just to help clarify it for me, if you are organizing a, a worship service in your home as an official Baptist meeting, that is considered okay or it's or not? Well, as Osibartis' precedent shows, it is not. 
But if you do it as a private person, then uh, you can do it. But uh, again, it, it it depends on on local authorities, local okay. justice, yeah. and uh, the, the, yeah, it's and the application of that law has been un, very unfair. But uh, really, uh, across the country, uh, there were there have been cases. But again, Forum 18 says that between the amendments coming into force on 20th July. Of last year, January 13 this year, there were 34 known, known prosecutions of two Baptists, five Hare Krishna adherents, six Jehovah's Witnesses, one Buddhist, two Adventists, one Reformed Ukrainian Orthodox Bishop, five Pentecostals, five other Protestants, one prosecuted twice, and one village elder. One Jehovah's Witness congregation, one Pentecostal church, the New Apostolic Church's administrative center, and a Salvation Army branch, as well as Jehovah's Witness elder, have been charged under part. Three cases were dropped before reaching court, and two more were returned to police or prosecutors by judges and not resubmitted within the stipulated three-day period. Four trials are still underway as of 13 January. Of the 25 trials which have concluded 19 resulted in conviction uh, and six in acquittal which really is uh, unusually high rate of acquittal for russian justice system so the application has been uneven it depends on how local authorities look at uh, religious activities uh, and it's still uh, they're still figuring their way going uh, going forward as russian evangelicals we see that similarly in other large countries like china you get reports in China both that it's highly it persecutes Christians quite fiercely, and other reports that it gives a lot of religious freedom. But a lot of those differences have to do with how the local magistrates enforce law. So it sounds similar to that. Who were the big supporters of this bill when it was passed? Ironically, one of those big support, uh, one of the big supporters was Russian Orthodox Church, which I think uh, is not wise because the law really does not differentiate between Orthodox and representatives of other faiths. And the Russian Constitution says that uh, Russian Federation is a secular state where church and state are separated. I just envision a situation in the future when that law will be turned, will be used against Orthodox by a president who is not as fond on Symphonia as Putin is. Maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about this idea of Symphonia and what that means. In contrast to the cherished ideals of religious liberty and the separation of church and state held in the United States, uh, a major contributing factor to the recent events in Russia is this concept of symphonia or institutionalized harmonious relations uh, between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Russian state. This intentional connection between church and state allows the Orthodox Church to enjoy all the attendant privileges of political preference and fits into uniquely Russian national identity. The worldview of Russian orthodoxy is holistic and organic. It does not have sharp divisions between various spheres of human society of branches of power. While it does grant considerable importance to human personality, atomistic individualism is alien to it. The search for meaning and purpose is central to this worldview, and Russians look to the Orthodox Church mostly to provide this meaning and purpose. Uh, and by contrast, Western culture in uh, in the minds of many Russians and has come to be associated with individualism, consumerism, and secularism. Uh, these three features of Western culture have not been fully embraced by Russians since Western way of thinking became more familiar to, to them after the fall of the Berlin Wall. But these three features have not served uh, North American evangelicals very well either. It does seem to me that they are 
major part of the difficulty the North American evangelical churches have with church attendance and getting the people involved. I think those features need to be resisted not just by Russians, but by North American evangelicals as well. I can see where that's a problem from our perspective as well, because we're not we're not we're hardly fans of consumerism and individualism. <laughs> And all these things. So we recognize how capitalism, democracy, as much as we appreciate them and love them, also aggravate the tendencies toward consumerism and individualism. So there is part of us, I think, that's sympathetic with the idea that uh, there might be a better way of going about doing this sort of thing. Yeah, but, but Mark, of course, very few North American evangelicals would tell you that they are fans of these three things. But when there is that notion that faith is entirely private issue, it is entirely private matter and has to be relegated to the realm of the private, so to speak, uh, when it's just Jesus and me, on one hand, and on the other hand, when North American churches often, uh, and uh, some of Russian evangelical churches do that as well, bent over backwards to cater to the taste of popular culture, it, it just does seem to me that they inadvertently perhaps propagate those those values, even though they, they say that they're not fans. Yeah, well, that's fair. That's a fair comment. And so because of the fact that they're, that they're saying like, oh, we can't speak out against some of these things. So by saying that like, faith is reduced to something that is just privatized, they are essentially are kind of like ceding it to the larger authorities. Is that what you would say? Uh, you mean, uh, well, um, not necessarily ceding that to the larger authorities, ceding their faith to the larger authorities. And we're talking about North American evangelicals. But ceding the, pub, the whole public sphere, public realm, uh, to uh, that sort of secularism, uh, removing faith from that, and not necessarily advocating that symphony idea, but removing faith from the public square entirely, making it entirely private matter, that would be another extreme, and uh, those are not, uh, those are two alternatives. Either of them is not good. So recently, we've had a few American Christians, generally that are fairly conservative, would be people like uh, Franklin Graham and um, Pat Buchanan, basically praising Russia and Putin for, quote-unquote, protecting traditional Christianity by supporting laws that confirm with Christian teaching, especially the laws that criminalize pro-gay rights speech and advocacy. So it, it sounds like they are supporting the idea of symphonia. Is that the way you would read it? <laughs> well, no, I would not. Uh, but they're certainly uh, anxious about some of the changes in North American culture. One respected uh, media outlet told us recently that Putin's approval rating in the U.S. stands at baffling 22%. And in reality, it would probably be closer to 25 or even 30%, I think, uh, Putin's approval rating is in the U.S. is understated, just as Trump's approval rating was before the election. This is not good enough to get uh, to get uh, Putin elected as U.S. president had he been eligible <laughs> to run, uh, exactly. but still substantially higher than one would expect for a foreign strongman who seems to regularly undermine U.S. interests. And much of that, I believe, uh, has been driven by those who perceive Putin as a protector of Christian values and a bulwark against the onslaught of secular political correctness. 
underline that, it seems to me, is the yearning for society that is more cohesive, where people are less individualistic and isolated. Also, all over the world, people become less committed to democratic values when they perceive the system they represent as rigged against them. And Putin's approval rating may indicate that the U.S. and the West in general are not as much of an exception to this trend. <laughs> of course, there is also Putin's bare-chested macho image. And his popularity may be a reaction to changing of gender roles in Western society. I think Putin's popularity, Western evangelical leaders praising him, those things are symptomatic of uh, liberal secularism, increasingly unable to provide the kind of spirituality that would hold society together and underpin Western democracy. And this is a big, big issue. Yes. So This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Well, I was obviously being hyperbolic about them being in favor of the Symphonia, but they do specifically say, both Buchanan and Graham have said that, uh, have implied that it is one of the jobs of the state to reinforce Christian morals, which is an interesting position now in a country in which we've, we have uh, agreed for some time that there is a stark separation between church and state for them to hold this view. But I think it, mu- it must have something to do with their disillusionment uh, with the current trend in terms of our moral, our moral values in our country and the moral disarray of our country. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and that uh, certainly plays into that. You know, I was trying to think, though, if, like, you know, we don't have anything that's the equivalent of a Russian Orthodox church unless you wanted to substitute Orthodox with, like, Judeo-Christian values or some, like, name that we give to a, a common, like, religious myth. But part of the problem, I imagine, for American evangelicals that Russian evangel or that Russians would not face um, if they're trying to go back to this idea of like spirituality uniting the country is that we don't have any founding spirituality that does unite the country, so to speak. I mean, from the beginning, there's all these different colonies that come over and are started in the 16 and 1700s are different, <laughs> are basically different faiths who are escaping how they were allowed to articulate their faith when they were back in Europe. You have a colony that is for Catholics and a colony that's for Baptists and co- some colonies that aren't founded on religion at all, like Jamestown. We don't really have any real institution to kind of rely on for that nostalgia if people want to go yeah, back we, on that. We don't have an institution, but we've had a, a up until the early 60s, Maybe I don't know when you date it, but most people recognize that we used to have the kind of the the government, the politicians, the social society. There was an agreed Protestant ethic about how you the go civil about religion yeah, stuff. civil religion sort of thing that everyone kind of agreed on that has that has unraveled in the last twenty years. So that that is why that's the reason for the in a sense the anxiety among 
many Christians, including uh, Pat Buchanan, and it was a, a you know devout conservative Catholic and Franklin Graham. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, I also would see North American civil religion as a sort of a softer version of uh, Orthodox spirituality. Perhaps not as not uh, not, uh, not as dominant, but there is you know the invocation of God in in significant public gatherings. There is a prayer in Congress, uh, inclusive prayer, so so to speak. So uh, people of different faiths can, uh, can say amen. But th there is that, that religion because there is really the need to have the spirituality that would unite uh, the country as people, some sort of spirituality, not explicit religion than something else. And yes, as you, Mark, uh, said, it, it has been unraveling and that has caused considerable anxiety correctly in my judgment. So I, I'm thinking here about, again, these Baptists and Lutherans that we talked about in the beginning, and also the fact that you mentioned, you know, there are Russian Orthodox members who only come to church on Easter. On the one hand, you may have a crowd that only shows up to the Orthodox churches on Easter, but at least they show up to Orthodox churches versus Baptists and Lutherans and Jehovah Witnesses, for that matter, that don't show up at the Orthodox churches at all. And about how that kind of like, I don't know, strains Russian identity. For people who aren't part of the Russian Orthodox Church, what is that kind of like when it comes to articulating Russian identity and how much they feel a sense of patriotism or alignment with being Russian? It is part of a national identity to many Russians. Since the collapse of the communism, Russia, Russians have been in search of their national identity, if you will. Well, uh, before 1991, there was the sense that uh, all of us uh, were sort of destined, if you will, to spread the right philosophy, the communist philosophy, to convert the, uh, to convert the entire world uh, to the communist way of thinking and living. And when that collapsed, there was a question, who are we, what is our destiny? Uh, for a time, it, it has been drowned in uh, all, all those economic hardships, but uh, with Putin and uh, rise in the living standards due to the jump in the price of oil, Russians uh, asking uh, themselves question, who are we? What is our destiny? What do we have to share with the world? And Russians, you know, they always have those big ideas. Russia is a big country. Uh, they are not uh, accustomed to seeing their destiny in small terms. And so some of the recent difficulties in U.S.-Russian relations and some of the Putin steps uh, in the international arena are directly linked to this search. Okay, that's very helpful. Let's talk about specifically what religious freedom, what we might expect as Americans. Now, American churches and American Christians support various and sundry mission organizations. We, have, we support various and sundry religious freedom organizations. And we have a particular Western view of what religious freedom should look like. It's not just freedom of worship, it's freedom of speech, it's freedom to proselytize, it's freedom to argue with the government. Is that view of religious freedom fair for us to expect that of other countries, especially a country like Russia, or does, can religious freedom take on a different shape in, in other countries? I think, Mark, all those things that you mentioned uh, would be fair to expect. I would say the uh, the very basic, that's the issue of very basic fairness. But again, uh, the question is, uh, uh, the notion that people should be free to exercise their faith or not to exercise any is really uncontroversial. All depends on how it is interpreted. If it is understood implying that everyone's faith is a purely private matter that should be a marginal impact at best on how one carries on her public roles, 
then it does have distinct Western flavor and has limited chance to be adopted in other parts of the world. Uh, however, if it's taken to mean that faith being free and not coerced does have a robust communal dimension and is of great importance to a society at large, then many outside the West would embrace it. It's not always easy to find that golden mean where there's healthy balance between freedom of faith on the one hand and a robust communal dimension of faith on the other. To have both, you would have to have a rule of law and robust civil society, and Russia uh, does not have a strong tradition of either. But finding that balance uh, may be crucial not only for the future of Russia, but for the future of uh, many other places, for the future of the West as well, for the future of religion, but also, it seems to me, uh, for the civilization as a whole. Yeah, because we, fa we face the same tensions in, in countries in which uh, Islam and the government have a relationship of symphonia as well. It isn't an unusual idea where this church and state try to work together to form and fashion and shape society in ways that they think are beneficial for everyone. So it does seem, like you've said, we've got to figure out a way to find the golden mean in various and sundry societies what that looks like. It's not going to look exactly the same, uh, but I think we we probably have to go beyond just saying people should have religious liberty, because I think as you're saying, I don't know that anyone would disagree with that as such. It just depends on what that looks like on the ground. It is The question is not unique in Russia. It is much also debated in, in North America as well. Uh, not in the sense that government should interfere in, uh, in churches and how much it should interfere, but in the sense what is acceptable and what is allowed in the public square, what, is, uh, what sorts of religious expression can be uh, recognized as, as a legitimate part of public conversation. This is something North American Christians grappling with as well. What's, what's worrying to me is that the center, the religious center, is rapidly disappearing. You kind of uh, either on uh, the conservative side or on uh, the more progressive side all, all the well. Uh, it, it, it's tough to be in the middle. Uh, the recent case with Tim Keller and my alma mater, Princeton Theological Seminary, shows Tim Keller is uh, particularly a mainstream pastor who has been able to reach many people, but because of some of his stances, he was not given the Kuiper Prize. So it is not uh, the question uh, just unique to Russia. It is also a relevant question for the United States, uh, for, for, North, for North American Christians, if not in the sense of state interfering uh, in matters of faith and matters of religion, then in the sense of what is an, ex an expression of uh, faith acceptable in the public realm. That's a good. That's a good uh, observation. We shouldn't be throwing stones at other people when we are working out the issues ourselves day by day. You know, one thing that we wanted to kind of get into is to circle back with the story from the beginning about evangelicals trying to figure out whether or not they should, you know, stick their neck out for Jehovah Witnesses here. And I, I, I'm just wondering, what, what do you think about that? I mean, clearly, if, you know, there's been some evangelicals that called the Orthodox Church idol worshipers. I'm assuming that they have similar stances for Jehovah Witnesses. And yet, you know, they're a fellow minority faith in many ways. Do you think that evangelicals should stand up for religious freedom in this instance? 
Uh, I think they should, but that may not be the instincts, as you rightly noted in the beginning of our conversation. Unlike the Western brethren, Russian evangelicals often have greater reflexive aversion to what they perceive as heresy than to violation of religious freedom. I, I don't think they have, they're as outraged uh, by violations of religious of what is commonly understood as religious freedom as uh, North American evangelicals, because, well, they have been under persecution for almost their entire lives. That's something not unusual. That's something to deal with, uh, something that may not go away, and something that may be even helpful in the ways that it, it helps uh, the church to be more cohesive and more united. Uh, so I don't think we should expect Russian evangelicals to be particularly active in advocacy for the freedom of Jehovah's Witnesses. That said, Russian evangelicals should understand that they may be the next ones. After powers that be get Jehovah's Witnesses outlawed, they may do the same to evangelicals, but Jehovah's Witnesses, tough bunch. Uh, the government, government may have its hands full with them for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, makes one wonder, any government that tries to stamp out uh, some minority religion, whether that's a, in this day and age, whether that's a realistic hope for them or whether they should try to figure out ways to accommodate them, because it, especially with a stubborn group, one can one might not admire a Jehovah Witness theology, but one can admire their character and their stubbornness and their, their faithfulness in the midst of persecution. Yes. I'm wondering, as a side, it is generally known that the Russian Orthodox Church had to compromise itself in many many in various ways in order to survive under the communist regime. I'm surprised there hasn't been more backlash against the Orthodox Church for their stance during communism, their, what other people would say, the, the simple compromise of their faith. And one would have imagined that when, com, when, when communism was rejected, Orthodoxy would be rejected with it. I mean, what is your take on that, Andre? Uh, well, Orthodox uh, just do not have the same history and of divisions as evangelicals have. Russian Baptists, for example, split over that. There, there were Russian Baptists who were kind of accommodating to the government policy, who paid lip service to the wisdom of the government. And uh, and there are those who just rejected that pressure and said the government has no business uh, interfering in the church. Uh, Russian Orthodox uh, have just have not had the same uh, kind of uh, tradition of split. And uh, also Russian Orthodox, they've always been sort of together with the state. Well, will be just by the state side, even the communist state. So it's not something that, they, that is unusual for Orthodox tradition. The state does not want us. Well, we kind of will kind of hang around until the, stand, the sta state changes its mind and we'll work with the state in ways that we can. So there has been some backlash. There has been some, but as you rightly says, not as much of it as one might expect. Yeah, that reminds me of when I, when, when, uh, I was a pastor of a local church. People who had been members of the church for a long time, if they didn't like you as a pastor, they would just, they would hang on because they knew you were going to go away eventually. Mm -hmm. And they would get, maybe the next pastor they got would be one they liked better. So maybe that's how the Russian Orthodox look at the state, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, that's how they looked at the communist yeah, state. Yeah, exactly. Hey, they were right. <laughs> they were, and they were right. There you go. <laughs> yes, they were right. They have more wisdom than sometimes uh, we can give them credit for. Well, thank you so much for that awesome, really engaging discussion. I know that I'm still going to be thinking, and probably when the podcast ends, we'll talk to Mark about it some more because it's a very interesting topic. So I appreciate this, Andre. I'm going to have a little brief segment for Slow to Speak 
which is when we read some of our listener feedback. And last week on the show, we had Charlie Rivera here to talk about churches that are opening their doors to undocumented immigrants. And um, we had this comment that was left by Phil Hubbs on our Facebook page, who just kind of responded to some of the issues that we were talking about with a series of questions. He said, I feel conflicted. Yes, we are called to love and help those people in need, but we are also called to follow the law as long as it doesn't directly conflict with the gospel. Should we care for them up to the point that the authorities arrest them? Are we to block their arrests? So thank you for engaging in some of that thinking, Phil, that we brought up on the show. And just as a reminder, I love reading listener feedback and hearing from what everyone has to say. And you can do that by leaving that feedback on Twitter at CT Podcasts or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show. We call it Precious Moments. Precious Moments is when I ask everyone to share something that's bringing them joy this week. So, Andre, are you ready to go? Yes, absolutely. Washington Capitals beat Minnesota Wild uh, last night, and Alex Ovechkin had a hat trick. There you go. (laughs) Although I never pray for the team, this is the moment I'm thankful for. You guys had the Stanley Stanley Cup three times in the past few years. We've never had it. It, It's our time. Go Caps. Okay, but the Caps lose every time in the playoffs, and it's so sad. Weren't they up last year a bunch, and then they collapsed? I'm sorry. I hate to bring that up. Are they lost in Game 7? What am I remembering? Uh, uh, Well, uh, we have not been able to get to uh, conference finals for for quite a while, but our time will come, and I believe... (laughs) This is the year. Well, I will say that last year the Sharks went to the finals, and I don't know if you know the history of the Sharks, but they also had histories of like going up like three-one on teams in the finals and then collapsing. So if there's hope, if the Sharks can make it, the Cavs can make it too. Absolutely. Is there a place where our listeners can find you online? I should be, but I don't. I I, I do not know. I think uh, there are some benefits of having the Facebook account, but I hear people who do spend a lot of time on Facebook and already spent a lot of time on uh, all those things I should be spending less time on. I do have a LinkedIn account, though. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. All right, Mark. I think I'll have a precious moment on Friday afternoon because I'm giving a presentation at the Religious Communicators Conference here in Chicago in which I'm going to be talking about the temptations of covering Christianity as a journalist. What are the cha- Essentially, what are the challenges of it? So I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, but I'm like Robert Louis Stevenson. I love having written. So I'm in the middle of writing the 20-minute presentation right now. So it's not a precious moment now, but when I've finished it, I will be able to say, be I so, love so precious. having written it and having spoken it. We've been there. We've been there. That's a wonderful feeling. I've had that big time when I finished my dissertation. There you go. And tell us about the Galley Report. The Galley Report is a weekly newsletter in which I link to stories and make comments about those stories. You can subscribe to it or just simply read it by going to christianitytoday.com slash the Galley Report. My precious moment is for a park in Chicago called the 606. It is a three-mile-long park that goes through a bunch of the neighborhoods on the west side of the city. It's elevated. It's on a former rail line, and so you're about two stories up in the air, and it's a great place to bike and walk and run and just be outside and see your community. And I've been on the 606 three times in the past week. So I'm just really enjoying the fact that the weather's getting nicer and that I can take advantage of this really cool park that's pretty close to my house. People can 
follow me online or on Twitter specifically at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is a production of Christianity Today and you can find our other podcast if you go on iTunes and you search Christianity Today. You can go ahead and subscribe to our magazine at orderct.com slash quick to listen. Thank you for everyone who is a current subscriber. We really appreciate you. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred and you can find it wherever podcasts are if you like the show though please make sure to go on to itunes and review us there that helps a lot we'll see you all next week every day ct testifies to the reality that jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear jesus transforms ct equips Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.